We'll be in Genesis 12. You can flip open there. Jesus, again, we come and we gather and we immerse ourselves in the long narrative of Scripture that proclaims the same message that you are our faithful God and Savior. That when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful. You cannot deny yourself. That all things work together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose. That you are the one that will complete the good work that you have begun in each one of us. That one day you will present us spotless before the throne of the Father. So we ask, Lord, in Genesis, that your faithfulness, your character, your goodness, your grace, and your mercy would shine. We pray that this book would renew and straighten minds, incorrect ideas, errant theology about you, and that we could behold you as you truly are. And that when we see you, our hearts would sing for joy. So may we see you in Genesis 12, we ask. And I ask this in your name. Amen. So, um, a couple years ago, in seminary, uh, it was uh, my Greek class, and it was a one-week-long class, and it was day one. I'd got to class a little bit late, a minute or two, so I had sat down, and it's the, I, I did an intensive where you study beforehand, you go to class for a week straight, you just eight hours a day up there, then you do class work afterwards. So this was the intensive in Portland, and everyone's meeting each other, and there's about 25 students in the class. So the professor, wanting to break down walls and make everybody feel like they know each other, decided to do this. He's like, okay, I want everybody to go around the room, say your name, where you're from, and your favorite book. Well, that gives the opportunity for seminary students to brag, right? Ooh, what book is my favorite? Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, you know, or some archaic book. So that's happening around, and I'm just ornery. So, so when it came to me, I had a good friend who was sitting across the class because I got in late. And when it came to me, I said, my favorite book is The Idiot by Dostoevsky. And so my buddy, who's across the room, said, yeah, was that your biography, buddy? <laughs> it was so funny. <laughs> I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm like, touche, great, great call. I actually do like the book. It's a really, really great book. Um, what we see in Genesis 12 is the archetype of how to tell a fantastic story. It has every ingredient. You have the quest, you have the acceptance, you have a problem, and then you have the heroic rescue. It is one of the greatest stories told, all right? And this launches, I said on Sunday, a correction of what had been happening to the image of God. Babel was this idea that corrupted God, that you could make God in your image, you could control him, he would owe you, if you build it, he'll come. Genesis straightens that out, Genesis 12. Nope, I'll come, I will call, and I'll be faithful. Very different picture, huge, huge story. So Genesis 12, verse one, let's jump in. If you weren't here last week, I'll add this. Genesis 11 leaves us with some major roadblocks. It's the table of, well, it's, it's a genealogy. The table of nations is chapter 10. It follows on the table of nations and it's going down the line. This guy had this son, this guy had this son, this guy had this son. Abram and his wife, Sarai, were barren. So there's a problem, right? It's all dad, son, dad, son, dad, son. Dad and wife are barren. On top of that, all the names of Abram's family are pagan. So now you have this corrupt pagan family that's unable to have a child. That's where we're left. Uh-oh, what's gonna happen? How's this thing gonna be fixed? So that launches us into chapter 12. Now, verse one, this, I call this the quest. 
Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The quest. Notice all the threes. Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your, your father's house. Three. And I make you a great nation, bless you, make your name great. Three again. So you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Three, three, three. What does that mean? I have no idea. I just found it interesting. Like something that's kind of poetic. All right. So very often when I read texts like this back in Noah as well, the Bible doesn't answer the question that I want the Bible to answer. So if you read verse one, what do you think? What's your big question on verse one? How? How did God speak to Abram, right? Isn't that it? Don't we all wanna have God speak to us? And so you have these texts like Noah, God said, build an ark. How did he tell Noah to build an ark? Here we got Abram, God calls him in this outline outside of the promised land. How does he talk to Abram? How did that work? Because I want that to happen in my life. The Bible like skips over these things. Like, let's say verse one went like this. On this thundering night when lightning was everywhere, 55 mile an hour rain. It was coming down two and a half inches of rain a second. At exactly 11.58 p.m., while Abram was out in this lightning storm, God spoke to him. What would we then do at every rainstorm? We're going to go out there. Okay, God, speak to me, right? We're going to all die from hypothermia or lightning bolts. There's a reason why the Bible answers the questions God wants to answer and leaves the questions he does not want to answer hanging there. And there's a very important reason. God wants faith, not formulas. So if there was some kind of a formula in here, like you do these things, then, then you would build a tower to get to God, right? You would do that formula over and over and over again. The big message when God speaks in the Bible is this, whoever encounters God, their lives are changed. Noah encounters God, his life is changed. Abram encounters God here, his life is changed. Isaiah 6, Isaiah encounters God. You read Isaiah 1 through 5, Isaiah is like unplugged. Chapter 6, God shows up. Isaiah is like, oh my goodness, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's going to slaughter me. God doesn't. Then God says, hey, I got a mission. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. His life is transformed. That's the big message. Abram encounters God and his life is transformed. And we're supposed to be walking by faith, not by sight. So note, first, who God comes to. God's changing direction. Chapters one through 11, God's working with the nation. Nations, all of them. Chapter 12, God begins to work through one guy and his name is Abram. Was he special? Did he somehow earn it? Did he deserve it? Why Abram? What we know about him is he's a pagan, lives in an idolatrous town called Ur, hot tub town, some commentators say. He was married to a gal named Sarai. Her name means wife of the moon god. She's probably part of the pagan priestly family, right? There's, there's absolutely no reason why it should be Abram. This is a complete act of God's grace that he calls this pagan idolater and covenants with him. And he tells him, hey, leave your country and your kindred and your, your father's house. Does he actually do that? If you read back to chapter 11, he doesn't do it. He takes his dad and his brother's son, Lot. And they only make it to Haran for a while, probably 25 years. God just seems to be like, okay, fine, we'll wait. And then 25 years later, he finally makes it into the promised land. So he obeys, yes, 
But it took him a long time and God just has patience with him. I think too often when we read the Bible, we remember the flannel graph from kindergarten or whatever it was or Sunday school. And so we imagine like these perfect people. Abram is like this semi-bald dude with a big beard, right? He's always got a big beard. He's always bald. No one tells us that, but that's what he looks like. And he's always smiling and it's awesome. No way. The Bible presents blood, dirt, agony, hardship, sweat. The Bible is this. God grabs bad people and makes them good. That's the story of the Bible. Abraham is a bad dude. God grabs Abram. He covenants with him and Abram's life is transformed. It's God always grabbing the wrong person and doing great things with them. That's the story of the Bible. Read Judges. The right dude is Samson. Does Samson ever do great things for God? He never leads Israel in a revival, never um, renews worship of Yahweh. He's a loner, he does his own thing. Seems like he should be the man, he's not. Who really is the man in the book of Judges? A guy named Gideon, who when God appears to him and says, hey, mighty man, Gideon says, where? Right? He's hiding in a wine press because he's afraid. He goes, no, I am the least of my family. We're the least of the tribes. You're picking the wrong guy. And God says, perfect. I'm gonna do great things with you. The first two kings, Saul, it says this about Saul. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He looked like a king. That guy's king material. Colossal failure. The next king, David, when Samuel the prophet comes to anoint kings and Samuel is told, excuse me, Jesse is told, grab your boys in. Jesse doesn't even grab David, totally ignores him, overlooks him because he did not look like king material. God's always grabbing the wrong person, right? You look at the disciples. Judas was from Jerusalem, educated. He would be the star, you would think, but he's not. Instead, the star is Peter, a bumbling fisherman who constantly put his foot in his mouth, but the first time he preaches, 3,000 people get saved. God loves to use the wrong people. When I think about my job, I cannot, if you told me when I was 16 years old at Grants Pass High School in my speech class that I would be doing this for a living, I would have rebuked you. Get thee behind me, Satan. I could not have imagined a worse thing to do than this right here because I hated being in front of people. God is always grabbing the wrong people and doing great things with them. They, they say a Greek coach is this. He gets more out of his players than they even imagine they have. That's what God is. So he chooses the absolute wrong person and is gonna do something incredible with this guy named Abram. Notice that verse two has come to pass. I will make you a great nation. Did you know this about, I could give you so many statistics. I'll give you one. Do you know that the Jewish people make up 0.2% of the world's population, but they have won 22% of Nobel Prizes? A hundred, if you're Jewish, you are a hundred times more likely to win a Nobel Prize. You just, the list goes on and on. They become a great nation. Whether they want to real, recognize it or not, God's blessing is on them. And then number two, I'm gonna make your name great. Is Abram, Abraham, he later is called, is Abraham's name great? They say there are two universal words that are known by most of the people in the world. First one is hallelujah. The second one is the name Abraham. Two universal words that most people recognize, right? The three big monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism all track back to Abraham. His name has been made great, right? This, this has come true 100%. Now, why was Abram blessed? It says in our text, what does it say? So you'll be a blessing. Abram, I'm gonna do all these things for you so that you are a blessing to other people. Listen, believer, you and I are not to be conduits of God's blessing, or we're not to be containers of God's blessing. We're to be conduits of it. 
God blesses me, God blesses you, God does great things with us, you know why? So that we can spill out and bless other people. Like there's a crazy theology, I think that creeps into church where it's like, you know, God wants me to have lots of stuff so that my neighbors will see all my stuff and they'll be like, dude, where'd you get all that stuff? And then I can tell them, Jesus gave me all this stuff. So then they'll believe in Jesus so they can get more stuff. It's ridiculous. No, Jesus blesses you so that you can be a blessing to others. Are you being a blessing to other people around you? I hope so. That's what we're called to be. Yesterday, I was amazed by two families at Edgewater. And there's a guy who, um, we've been walking with him a long time. He relapsed into heroin and just spun out. And there's two families, two very blessed families at Edgewater that just, they wrapped him up and just said, no way. They intervened in his life. One of them yesterday took off time from work, drove him from here up north, way up north to uh, Teen Challenge. They're paying for it. They cleaned up his car. They just said, no way. Jesus, you've blessed us. And now we're gonna take the blessings you've given to us. And when we see someone hurting, we're gonna bless them. Am I a blessing with what God has given to me? Am I being an Abraham? I certainly hope we are. Because I think the more you're a blessing, the more you get blessed. The bigger conduit we are, the more God says, I can trust you with this stuff. Abram, you're gonna be a blessing. Then last of all, the last part of this promise is to me massive. And in you, all, how many? All the families of the earth shall, not might, shall be blessed. Think about this. Abram, pagan idolater, Ur of the Chaldees, middle of nowhere, Middle East, 4,000 plus years ago, what are the odds of him becoming a blessing to all the families of earth? Same odds that the Beavers will win the football championship series. It's right in there, man. Like, this is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. The odds of some dude in the backwoods of nowhere becoming a blessing to all nations. Here's what this tells us. Number one, God has not given up on all those nations, right? He's including them in this blessing. I'm gonna get them as well. Abram, I'm gonna use you and I'm gonna use you to get all the other nations. So I'm not giving up on them. I'm just trying the method that will actually succeed, okay? Secondly, I believe this is the covenant of the Bible, that it's the one that spans everything. So a lot of times when we think about the Old Testament, what do we think about? Laws, right? All those laws, man, what's the deal with all those laws? Like, don't do this, don't do that, don't eat this, don't go, I mean, what's the deal with all the laws? I don't think the Old Testament is actually about Moses and the law. I think the Old Testament is actually about Abraham and this covenant right here. So I'm gonna read just something, it's in Galatians. This is what Galatians says. It's Galatians 3 verse seven. Know this, that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, listen to this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So we think gospel, New Testament, right? Jesus brings the gospel, New Testament. Galatians says, uh-uh, that God actually preached the gospel to Abraham. Now, when did God preach the gospel to Abraham? Well, thankfully, Galatians tells us, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abram, the man of faith. Galatians chapter three just said this. The gospel was there from the very beginning and it was preached to Abram when God said, I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna give you a great name and you're gonna be a blessing to all nations, right? And then the next verse just says this, the law doesn't work. For all those who rely on the works of the law are under the curse. Now, the key verse for me, though, is verse 19. Why then the law? Okay, if, if the gospel was Genesis chapter 12, why in the world do we have the rest of the Old Testament? Why didn't Jesus come right then? 
Well, listen to what this says. Why then the law? Why all these dietary rules? Because if you've talked to Christians, most Christians at some point in their life get wrapped up in law. Have you noticed that? Well, I shouldn't eat this. Well, I better go to church on this day. Well, I better not wear those kind of clothes. Well, I better boycott. We try to use Moses to accomplish what only Jesus can. So we end up going back to the law. So why the law? Here's what it says. It was added. That's a very important word to me theologically. So it's added. It's an addition. It's not the thing. It's the addition. It's a parenthesis. It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The offspring there, obviously, you guys know what it is. It's Jesus. So let me try to put this together for you. You got Abram. He does his thing. Moses comes, does his thing. Why the law? Why all these rules? If you read through the Bible with us in February and March, you read through the Torah, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those books, you see this cycle. It is repeated. It's a theme. It's showing you something. God says, do something. The children of Israel disobey. Immediately following that, laws are added. It's exactly Galatians 3.19, right? Exodus 19, God says, hey, come up on the mountain. They don't do it. Exodus 20, 10 commandments, right? Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire. They do some things wrong. They're struck. And then God adds more laws. And the cycle is just repeated. It, it's like this. It's like God's raising kids. When you raise your kids, your goal, your heart for your kids was, I want to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all everyone else. I don't want you, I don't want to release you on the world like a, you know, something that should go lay in the yard. I don't want to do that to you. I want you to be blessed so that you can be a blessing. So that's your heart to it. So you want to give them freedom and you want to do things with them. So let's say, for instance, your son turns 16 and he wants to borrow the car. So your heart is given freedom. All right, son, borrow the car, be home at a decent hour, right? Freedom. So your son comes home at 2.30 a.m. Next time he wants to borrow the car, what do you do? You add a law. All right, son, I tried to give you freedom. You came home at 2.30. Now be home by 9.30, right? You just added a law. Why? Because I, I wanted you to have freedom. I want to raise you into responsibility. I want you to be a blessing to other people. So I'm going to give you your freedom. But if you violate that freedom, I got to narrow it down and I'm going to give you a law. That's what you see in the Torah over and over and over again right? But the heart is something different. So if your son, instead that night comes home at 1030, he's broken the law. But if you had this conversation with him, son, what happened? Why are you an hour late? Well, dad, I was driving home at 920. There was a wreck on the road. I got out. I was the first one there. The guy was dying. I pulled him out of the car. I'm so thankful you forced me to take CPR because I saved the dude's life. The paramedics came. It was awesome. Would you be mad at him? Even though he broke the law? No, because he's fulfilling the heart. Oh, you're a blessing to people right? So the heart overwhelms that. And that's what you read Galatians 3. It says that God's plan was Abraham. This parentheses happened, but God constantly wanted to get back to the heart. I just want to raise you up and I want to bless you so that you become a blessing to all nations. This to me is the overriding covenant that God wants to happen. So when you come to the New Testament, here's what happens. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Buddies, you guys have missed it. You think the law is about counting your tithe or counting your spices. One seed for me or one seed for God, nine seeds for me. You think that's what it's about? No, it's about you becoming a generous kind of people. You think the law is about writing a certificate of divorce and handing it to your wife and saying, get it out of here. No, it's about you loving your wife, right? Jesus was constantly trying to get back to you. Here's the actual purpose to it. It was training up kids who could be Abram-like kids, blessed, who then become a blessing to everyone else. So Abram in the New Testament, Romans and Galatians, is the model of faith. I love it because very often it's hard to like, see, how does my faith walk out well? Like the unknown is the worst thing of all, isn't it? Like not knowing what God wants for you. Like, God, what do you want from me? The unknown is the worst. So men, when you're going to propose to your wife, what was the worst part of that proposal? The unknown, right? 
You're pretty certain, I think I've got her. You know, I've been playing her for a long time. I do have a really nice ring, but still there's this unknown, like, ah. So I think Abraham, at the very beginning of God's revelation of himself, God says, I'm gonna give you a picture of what it looks like to walk with me. And this is Abram. He's brilliant. He's both a mirror that reflects, and he's also a lamp to help us. So we're gonna see this as we travel through with Abram. It's brilliant, okay? So this is the quest. God says, leave this, and here's what's gonna happen. Well, good news. So Abram went. He accepts the quest. This is the acceptance. As Yahweh had told him, and Lot went with him. It's interesting that that's put in there because he's gonna be a problem. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. Shechem was the main temple for the god El, who according to the Canaanites was the top of the pantheon of gods. So he stops there of all places. To the oak of Moriah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's gonna be future trouble. Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to Yahweh, you know, right in this pagan God's backyard, altar to Yahweh. How fascinating. From there, he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of Yahweh. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So he has come into the top of the promised land and it's called the... Um, the patriarchal highway. It's just this ridge that runs all the way through. It's like the Pacific Crest Ridge, just a crest that runs through Israel. He's just following it down to the desert, all right? So number one, here's what the father of faith shows us. Obedience. God says, hey, leave country, kindred, family. Eventually, he leaves and he goes. New Testament over and over, when Jesus called his disciples, what did he say to them? Follow me, that's it. We think it's believe in me. No, Jesus says, follow me. And they would drop their nets and they would sell everything if you would. And they would say, okay, I'm 100% in. I will sacrifice, I will go, I will risk, I'll do it. People of faith, when they hear God's call, they do exactly that, okay. I'll risk, I'll sell, I'll move, I'll do it. Well, Matt, what does that mean for me? Should I sell my house? Should I move to 400 acres in Wolf Creek? Should I become Amish? I mean, what are you trying to say here? No, very often when you actually do that thing, you become Jonah Christians. You know what a Jonah Christian is? Read the book of Jonah. When he looked back at culture, the Ninevites, what did he say? I hate those people. And I wish God would judge them and destroy them. So very often when you actually isolate as a community of faith, you then look out on those that God wants to save still and you hate them because they're against your idea of what it means to be a pursuer of Jesus. No, the New Testament says, this is how it works now. Be in the world, but not of the world. We're, and this is the unbelievable balance. There's no harder balance Maybe it's getting harder and harder. There's no harder balance, and it's been this way for 2,000 years. How do you balance being in the world but not of the world? If you've been following Hearts with a Mission for the past couple of months, they're trying to figure out how you balance that. And we're trying to help them and walk with them in that. How do you balance being in the world but not being of the world? And the Achilles heel, I've said this now for 10 years, the Achilles heel of the Christian church in America right now is acceptance. We want to be accepted. We want to be relevant. You know what relevant actually means? It's, it's narrowing the distinction between what we are and they are. Look, we're just like you. We're hip. We're cool. We have this. We have lights down. We have, we're, we're just like you. Well, I don't know if that's actually what we're called to be, just like the world. We're supposed to be in the world, but we're supposed to be something else. So I read a really fantastic book. It's called Disappearing Church by Mark Sayers. Just a prophetic kind of book. And he says, we have to forget about being relevant 
And the church has to be looking at being resilient. If you look at the changers in the world throughout church history, they weren't relevant, they were resilient. They were what he calls a creative minority who spoke inside creatively to their culture, in it but not of it, saying, actually, this is the way life is to be lived. And they did it brilliantly and beautifully. It's a really, really good book. So we're to live, if you would, almost like Abraham's. He's in the land. There's Canaanites there. There's bad stuff there. But we're going to see, actually, Abraham begins to make friends with these people. And he starts to to move out with them. It's, It's an amazing thing. He starts to change them. So we're supposed to walk and pursue after Jesus and his kingdom in such a way that people see us and be like, hey, that's a great way to live. What's your secret? We're supposed to have more and more and more of that. So if you read church history, that's what the church did. They were this creative minority. So you can Google this. It's a great letter. It's from Emperor Julian, the apostate. So what happens is Constantine comes, says Christianity is okay. A couple emperors later, this guy named Julian comes and he says, I hate Christianity. I want to stamp it out. I want it out of the empire. Well, he tries to do that, but he can't. You know why? He writes a letter to this guy and he says, the reason we can't win is because Christians are kind to strangers. They care for the sick and the poor, their own and others. And they have this incredible sobriety to life. And we can't win unless we do those same things. What was he saying? The way they lived as a creative minority in the empire is transforming it. And unless we do the same things, we copy them, not the church copying the world. It was the opposite. Unless we start copying them, we're going to lose this war. I find that fascinating. We need to learn to be a resilient kind of people that are in the world, but not of the world. And here, you see Abram obeys I think God has told us a lot of things in the Bible that we're actually supposed to obey. And now we kind of want to discount it and we have this idea that grace covers and we don't have to actually obey, which is the opposite of obedience. Verses one through three are grace. God covenants with this pagan, idolater, undeserving Abram. And then what does he do? Verse four, he obeys. Grace does not free the believer from obedience. Grace makes possible obedience. It transforms my heart so that I begin to want the things of the kingdom and want to live in a way that is godly and right. That's what we're supposed to live like. And very often, here's what I think happens. The threat of legalism, which is, hey, you're a legalist. The threat of legalism, which really at Edgewater is the worst thing you could call somebody. Do you know that? Because we're so grace, and I I love God's grace. But like you can call us boneheads and morons and bigots and whatever you want. We'll be like, Father, forgive them. But you call us a legalist? Oh, I'm gonna fight you now. So the threat of legalism, I think rips off many Christians today from the rewards of obedience. And look at the reward of obedience. Abram obeys and what does God do? It's verse seven. Gives him the land. The land did not come with the covenant in verses one through three. Do you realize that? It came after Abram obeys. And God waited 25 years while he took around in Haran. So sometimes the threat of legalism and doing actually what God wants you to do, no, I'm not doing that, it's all grace. Okay, fine. God's like, all right, stay in Haran then. I've got this incredible blessing for you if you'd simply obey me, but you won't obey me, so I can't give you the blessing. And so God waits patiently as God waits. The New Testament puts it like this. It's Luke 16, 11. If you've been faithful with that which is least, more will be entrusted to you. Are we a faithful people? We need to be faith people, but then there is also this other side where we become a faithful people. Faithful. And the land that is given to Abram is unbelievable. If you know ancient history, Israel is the land bridge There's this great map. I should have got the picture of it and showed it to you. It actually shows, um, it's from 700 years ago. It shows these flower petals, Europe, Africa, Asia. They all come together, guess where? Israel. It was the land bridge between these continents where trade would go. The reason you move outside of Israel to the east, guess what you end up in? Desert, there's no water. 
The only way to trade was to get into the route through Israel because you've got water and supplies there. Out just the east, 100 miles or so, you're dead. So you have to be inside this corridor. Why would God put Abram at one of the major intersections of the world? Why would he put him right there? This busy, busy intersection. To share him, right? I want you to bless all nations. So I want to put you right in the center so that your life begins to shine out to all these people, right? Why does God put you in a bunch of traffic? So you can be his witness, right? Think about that at 6.05 or 5.05 p.m. on 6th Street. Why are you in all this traffic? To be my witness. To show in the midst of chaos and craziness, hey, I have a peace that passes all understanding. Hey, I have a God who is in control. That's why God put you in traffic. So here, he's put in the center of the universe. Pray for me, that'd be good in traffic. Then lastly, he built this altar. And I said on Sunday, he returns to this altar. When he strays and he goes south and he does some things he should not do, his anchor is this altar and he goes back to it. This is where I belong. We need anchors in life. I tell people two things they should write down. So I'll get people in after they have done Abraham mistakes and really blown it. And they are crying and weeping and there's hopelessness and there's misery. And I tell them, you need to start a sin journal where you just write down right now your sin and how it makes you feel. Because I tell you in six weeks, all you'll remember is the party, not the puking. All you'll remember is the fun times, not how you feel right now. So you gotta write it out so that when you're tempted to go back to that junk, you pull out your sin journal and you go, oh yeah, right, right. I don't wanna go back to that. Very few people do it. I'm threatening to put a camera up in the office and just hit record when they start. And then we start straying, I just send them a copy of it. If they really stray, I post it on YouTube. Everyone's gonna see it now, bro. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) So that's the first thing you need. But the second thing is this, we all need a book of blessings, like this altar, when God speaks to us. And we go back to that book, because here's the thing with the believer, it's the opposite. In hard times, we forget God worked. Oh, we throw up our hands. Oh no, what's gonna happen? Go back to your book of blessing. Go back to your altar. Go back where God spoke to you. Go back to that, oh yes, God has been so faithful throughout my life. Why am I throwing up my hands? Why am I freaking out right now? Every believer should have a book of blessings, altars that we return to when we're starting to stray and when we're beginning to doubt God's goodness in our life. So Abram makes this altar and he returns to it, keeps going back to it. Now we have the disaster, verse 10. Now there was a famine, life happens. He's obedient, I said this on Sunday, he has obeyed God 100%, pretty much, except for a lot. Obeyed a lot. (laughs) He's obeyed, he's done, he's gone, he's a man of faith, he's there, God's happy with him, hard times happen because believers will go through hard times. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. She's 65 years old. It's interesting, right? Isn't that interesting? It's not just Abram being the kind husband. The Egyptians see her too and they're like, whoo, she's hot. It's amazing, 65 years old. What, why? I don't know. She's beautiful. That's what the Bible says. The Egyptians believed it. Maybe it's, you know, and I think there are beautiful 65-year-old women, but let's be honest, we're not making grandmas gone wild. <laughs> right? And, and just being honest. So something's pretty amazing here. Sorry, that's totally off the cuff. Whenever I go off the cuff, I shouldn't. <laughs> she is 65, though. That is true. <laughs> And, when the, and she's beautiful. And there are lots of 65-year-old beautiful women. I'll end right there. <laughs> and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Okay, a couple notes on this. We talked about this on Sunday. Number one, Abram, um, the, the, the culture of the land was this. If a father died, the brother would hold the marriage rights to his sister. Most likely what Abram thought was going to happen when we went to Egypt was this. There would be someone that said, hey, your sister is a snap eye. I want to marry her. So Abram could say, okay, here's how it works in my custom. We need to have this deal that lasts for six months, three months, eight months, a long time, right? He was going to do that kind of a deal. But the guy that wanted his sister wasn't an ordinary dude. It was Pharaoh, the one guy that Abram couldn't negotiate with. So Abram thought he had this master plan. I'm going to trick this thing. I'm going to work this thing. And he gets worked. It's fascinating to me. If he had just trust God, God's promise, which is, hey, I'm going to make you great, then this would have never happened. So his faith falters right here. All right? Sarah, think about her. She's like this silent person. But how bad did Abram's sin affect his wife? Horrifically. Horrifically. Sin is like a hand grenade. When you unpop that thing, it doesn't just hit you, it hits everyone around you. Very often, the ones that you love the most. We think now today that sin is personal. So we have these sayings like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I love the bumper sticker. It says, God, what happens in Vegas still gets back to me. Think about that. Jonah, though. Jonah's another example. A dude's sin, right? I don't want to obey God. I'm not going to go that direction. I'm going to get on this boat. What happens to all the sailors and their goods? I mean, they got to toss it overboard. Right? That's somebody's fortune because of Jonah's sin. I think about my dad's alcoholism, how it affected me and my siblings. Right? We didn't, I didn't sign up for that. It happened to me. And yet, it has great effect on me. Pornography, right? Secret sin? No way. Pornography is the mechanism that funds the exploitation of children. It funds that. That is the mechanism by which kids all over the world are being hurt. Not a secret sin. Sin, what Satan does with sin is this. He leverages it to hit as many people as possible. So when you think your sin is personal, it's not. There's a bunch of people around you that will get whacked by it. The bystanders, usually the ones you love the most. Sarah gets whacked. And then there's this one little thing I'll end on this, on this little section. It says he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. If you paid attention, that's a big, oh, the Bible is wrong. Because camels did not exist in this area in 2000 BC. There's no way Abram had a camel. So I have an article, and the article is titled, Camels, the Straw That Breaks the Bible's Back. <laughs> so inventive. It's from CNN, which I don't know, uh, what's up with their network? It's definitely not the Christian News Network. But they ignore, like all this really good evidence, and I'll give it to you. There's a dig at the shahar e Sokharta, which is east of Iran, where they uncovered camel bones, and it dates to 2700 BC, 700 years before Abram. And then there's a petroglyph in Sinai, which is down below the Negev, you know, right in there. It dates to the time of Abraham, and it's a picture of a camel. So they're just ignoring known evidence for their own agenda. Here's the truth. Here's what's being said by this. When you add camel in there, they were very rare. It was saying something about Abram. Dude's got cash. Dude's got cash. You'd be like saying this about me. Matt's got some goats and a horse and a house, a 401k and a Ferrari, right? Dude's got cash. It says something very different than a Volkswagen. That's what's being said about Abram right here. Dude has cash. He came away from this deal with cash money, right? Now here, 
after the disaster is the heroic rescue. But verse 17, Yahweh afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men, his men, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The heroic, heroic rescue. What's sad to me is when an unbeliever chastises a believer on morality. Isn't that a tragedy? So three years ago in 2014, when the churches were saying, hey, let's stick for traditional marriage, you know the accusation against the church was? Sanctity of marriage, sanctity of marriage. What do you mean, sanctity of marriage? Half of you guys are divorced. What are you talking about, right? So then there's this accusation against us. Hmm, oh, yeah. We preach about being generous. The only thing is that we tie a lot of other groups when it comes to generosity. So we can preach great things, talk great things, but do we actually walk them out? We talk about the dangers of pornography often in church, but the trajectory of the church and the unchurched and the unbeliever are just about identical when it comes to pornography. It's a bummer when unbelievers chastise the church for morality because it gives an opportunity to blaspheme the good name of Jesus. And that's what happens here. So, big question, does Sarai have sex with Pharaoh? Once again, the Bible doesn't give us answers to some of the things we're like, what in the world, what, what happened? Here's my guess. If you read the book of Esther, Esther is brought in and she is purified for how long? One year before she goes into the king. That often those civilizations knew about certain kinds of diseases. So they would actually watch a woman for a period of time to make sure she was pure before there would be any relations. So most likely there's a long period of time and then the plagues, it doesn't tell us what they are, it just says they're plagues, great plagues. Uh, chapter 20 tells us that the plague that happens to Pharaoh there for the same incident uh, is a Viagra kind of problem. So maybe it's the same plague here. I think this is what happens. Um, we have heard a lot about Abram's faith to this point. Sarah now is learning the character of Yahweh. Even if your husband's a bonehead, I'll protect you. That's what Sarah's learning. Even if your husband's a moron, listen, I've got your back. And so she's learning, oh, he is a good God and I want to serve him. Brilliant chapter. So Abram, when you compare him to Moses and I'm done, Moses with the law, Moses with the saving of the people, the 10 plagues, Moses with all that, never gets to go into the promised land because the law can't get you in. Abram, with just simple faith, he walks up and down, up and down, up and down the land. He's all over it, just by faith. This is repeated again, because you have that entire generation that will not believe God and they die in the wilderness, but there's two that go in. Joshua and Caleb, why do they go in? They believed, faith, we believe God. We believe he's good and generous. And if he says he's gonna give us this, he will give us this. What you're finding from Genesis 12 on to Revelation 22 is what God wants is faith. Believe that I am good and believe that I am generous. And Abram is the only guy in the Old Testament who's ever called the friend of God. He's the only one, not David, not Moses, not these other giants of the faith. Abram alone is called the friend of God. In the New Testament, who is called the friend of God? 
all of us. John chapter 15. I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. You know why? Because Jesus is that promised seed, Galatians chapter three. And because of Jesus, we get grafted into all the promises that Abraham had, that God says the same thing to you and me. Matt, I want to bless you. I wanna make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'm gonna bless those that bless you and I'm gonna curse those that curse you. And so that in you, all nations will be blessed. We get the same grafted in promise because we've been grafted in by the offspring Jesus. So we now are called the friend of God. How incredible is that? So Jesus, may we be a people of faith. May we be those that our faith moves us to obedience. May you protect us from the lies of the wicked one that would want to use grace as an excuse to sin. And grace is the gasoline for obedience. May we be a resilient, creative minority in Grant's past that live lives of beauty as we pursue you. That we produce fruit, kindness to strangers, care for the sick and the broken, and a sobriety that's beautiful, just like they did in the early church. And may, Lord, those on the outside start wanting to copy us and how we live. So lead us and guide us, Lord. May we balance well tomorrow, the in the world, but not of the world. Help us in that, Lord. We know there's no formula. There's no laws. It's loving you, pursuing you, praying to you, asking you. That's what we need to be doing. So tomorrow, may we be a creative minority in Grant's past that produces beautiful fruit for your kingdom and your glory. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.